Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Workplace Strategies 2023 here in downtown, beautiful downtown, I might say, San Diego. I'm here with John Stretton and Stacy Bunk, and we participated and ran the immersion section yesterday at on about leaves of absence, FEMLA, and the ADA. So we thought we'd, what we'd do today is talk a little bit about some of the hot topics that people found interesting and pushed back on a little at yesterday's session. Um, let me introduce everybody. We, I've got, first of all, Stacy Bunk. Stacy is here with us from Kansas City. Is it Missouri or Kansas? I live in Kansas, work in Missouri. All right. Uh, where they've just opened a brand new airport, right? Correct. That has barbecue inside the airport. Correct. All right, which John and I still are waiting for. Right, because we thought we were going to get some. I know, just a welcome gift to San Diego. (laughs) Yeah. So, a little pastrami, something like that. Um, Stacy's former managing shareholder of the office. She, um, despite her extremely youthful appearance, has been doing this for like 22 years and uh, 17 of them with, uh, with our firm. Um, I like to have them give, have everybody give me a fun fact. And so Stacy, your fun fact was that you were, uh, that you met, what was his name? The, the Shriver. Anthony Kennedy, Kennedy Shriver. Shriver. All right. Uh, I was in college and I was volunteering at the Best Buddies, one of his organizations, and uh, was asked to go to Miami for that conference and get off the airport. And Anthony is there ready to pick me up to take me to the University of Miami for a week to um, work with individuals with disabilities. And That's great. And if I recall correctly, uh, you and your husband, the fun fact, fact that I think is fun, is that you and your husband have different views on jigsaw puzzle strategies. Is that right? That is correct. All right. And she's going to hit me in a moment. All right. Uh, we also have John Stratton. John is managing shareholder of our Stanford office, not Stanford, Stanford office in Connecticut, right outside of New York City, close to Greenwich. Is that right, John? That's exactly right. Right next door to Greenwich, and we're about 50 minutes outside of the Big Apple. Okay. And who says the Big Apple? Well, I just did, but uh, you know, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of folks from the Northeast, we still refer to it as even the city. All right. So, uh, John, actually, John, you have dual citizenship. You're Irish. You have Irish citizenship as well as America, U.S. citizenship. Right? I, I do. Uh, both my parents were born and raised in Ireland, and I lived over there for a couple of years when I was younger, but we've been here in the U.S. ever since. All right. And, John, uh, you made sure yesterday that I tell people that you have... Uh, competed in 30 triathlons, is that right? Well, definitely have competed in a number of triathlons. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure I made sure to tell you, but... Uh, <laughs> no, you made sure yeah, right. But, but yeah, no, one of the, the interesting things is we were out here in California is I did the Escape from Alcatraz in, in San Francisco, and uh, that was a, a bucket list item because it involved, you know, swimming in San Francisco Bay. 
Okay, and my name is Charles Thompson. I'm co-chair of the Leave of Absence Reasonable Accommodation National Practice Group. I practice in California and San Francisco, and uh, I'm a trial lawyer and a trial lawyer as well. So let's start with the topic that I was surprised got so much pushback at the immersion section yesterday. And in fact, we had to, people didn't believe people didn't believe us. I mean, I guess rather they started off not believing me when I responded question that we got was related to the Family Medical Leave Act and how temporary employees, and we're going to define those temporary employees as being either employed by the company itself or through a staffing agency assigned to be on site of a company. All right, so let's say you have a temp employee and you decide to go from temp to perm, temp, temporary employee to permanent employee. So. Um, two of the eligibility factors for qualifying for the Family Medical Leave Act is that you have to have worked 12 months, not 12 continuous months, but 12 months for the employer at some time in your life, or rather within seven years. That's right. And then 12, and then the employee also has to have worked 1,250 hours within the past 12 months. Doesn't mean they have to have worked each of those 12 months. But they have to have been. But they have to have worked 250 hours. Correct. All right. So the question that, that we got was: All right, let's say that the person works six months for me and and um, has a thousand hours. Do I carry those hours and those months over when I make the person actually my employee? They they got all those hours and those months uh, when they were temps. Now, do I bring those over to help them um, become eligible earlier? Right. And um, Stacy or John, I don't care which one of you would like to. Did I like to Stacy? Go ahead, please. Sure. So the audience in our session was pretty convinced that you do not carry the time over, and the panel believed that you do carry the time over, and uh, we did in fact confirm uh, to the audience that there is an opinion letter, or rather a fact sheet on point from the DOL that says that when considering eligibility for temporary employees, you do consider the time worked by the temporary agency. DOL stands for? The Department of Labor. Well, not everybody may know. No. You know, one of the other things that we wanted to clarify, so we did, we got that uh, resolved yesterday, which was great, but you know, if it's an independent contractor, it'd be a different situation, right? So what we're talking about here is a temporary worker, as Charles mentioned, from a staffing agency, and they'd be considered a dual employee of both the staffing agency as well as you, the employer. And that's why the, 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 the time is counted. But if you have an independent contractor, uh, that you then eventually hired as an employee will ignore the potential misclassification issue there, then that would be a situation when it, w it would not carry over. Right, so you carried over because of the joint, uh, what the DOL was going to say is the joint employment relationship. You both were employing them, employing the temporary employee, so that's why you carry over. 100%. Okay, great. And I don't think the entire room supported the other side. I think there was just a very vocal faction faction that refused to let us go on until we resolved that issue. I would concur. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, another, another topic that people were interested in, and which I think gives employers sometimes a little trouble, is uh, the interactive process. 
in t- terms of, so why don't we start here? So Stacy, what is the purpose of the interactive process? Let's start there. So the purpose of the interactive process is to engage in a dialogue with an employee who may need an accommodation, either under the ADAAA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendments Act, or under Title VII with respect to religious accommodations, or potentially a pregnancy accommodation, something of that type. And it is a requirement bestowed by the law on employers to engage in a discussion with employees about their rights and what they need to do to be able to perform their job if they fit within a selected protected category. John, what are some of the things that an employer should consider when um, conducting the interactive process, or might want to consider when they uh, engage in the interactive process. So that's something we did spend a good deal of time on in the session. And you know, one of the messages that we really wanted to drive home to everyone is we'll see from time to time, especially you know, in our role as outside counsel, that the interactive process may be conducted by email. You know, uh, writing back and forth. And one of the things that, you know, we wanted to bring to everyone's attention is you need to go beyond the email sometimes. And uh, one of the things employers might consider is going beyond the email. Exactly. So, so uh, what we end up doing is making sure that you reach out and as part of the interactive process, talk with the employees. We want to know, you know, what exactly is that mental or physical impairment? You know, what is the duration? What is the impact it has on your job duties? You know, what is the difficulty that, that it is causing? And then at that point, that's really going to help you have a more informed discussion on what a reasonable accommodation would be. And, you know, what we also uh, talked about yesterday is, yes, please listen to and hear what the employee says their reasonable accommodation is, but that's not the end of the analysis. There may be another, uh, a bunch of other alternatives that may be just as effective and maybe easier to implement or better to implement. So let's tease out a couple of things from what you just said, John. So an employee may want a particular accommodation that the employee thinks is reasonable. Stacy, does the employer have to accept? I mean, let's say that the accommodation that the employee chooses or would like is effective all right, or would be effective. Does the employer have to select the reasonable accommodation that the employee wants? No, as long as the employer has other reasonable accommodations that would enable the employee to do the job, the employer is not required by the law to give the employee their preferred accommodation. Okay, and John, one of the things you mentioned was that, look, it's there, you need to show the employee that it's more than just emails, all right? You actually have to have, or employers should cons- may want to consider having conversations as well as emails. So let's say that they, there are verbal discussions. Should employers consider, oh, I don't know, documenting those discussions afterwards? So that, that would be a great idea. <laughs> so I would be all in favor of that. Uh, so, you know. Why is that? Well, so the the bottom line is, is while the conversations are great, one, the conversations will allow you to get a lot more information than you'll get through an email, but also it helps, uh, you know, improve employee morale because you you are reaching out, you're having, you're working towards a a solution with the employee. But 
you know, what, what's so effective about the email is if there ever is litigation da down the road, you will now have a written document of what, uh, you know, transpired and what was discussed and what was offered. So even if you were going to have a verbal, you know, telephone conversation, in-person conversation, then definitely follow up, follow up with an email to talk about uh, that, that, that addresses what was talked about. And it's also, and, and, and Charles, I know, know you love this and Stacy, you as well. It's great for creating timelines or memorializing timelines. And if you ever end up in a situation later on where there may be litigation, those timelines can come in very, very handy, as well as that confirmation of what was discussed. Yeah, and all three of us are trial lawyers. We all go to trial. Um, and one of the ways that I look at it is that letter to that email to the employee sets out the story. Because by the time you get to trial, the law thing if you, if you were going to get rid of the case because of the law, you would have done that already on a, what we call a summary judgment motion. So at trial, who's telling the story? And what is the story that's going to appeal to the jury? So you have to explain things to the jury. And a written email that sets forth everything, noun, verb, subject, will, I think is usually very, very helpful because you put that, I used to say, on the... It used to be called an Elmo. Isn't that what we had in school? I can never understand why they named it after a Muppet. But it's now in a PowerPoint or something something along those. That's right. And, it, and it's just so compelling because, you know, usually these trials, as we all know, they don't happen until three, four, maybe even five years afterwards uh, by the time you get. So if you have an email back from when this conversation occurred, obviously memories were a lot stronger, or you would certainly hope they were at the time, than they are three, four, or five years later. And witnesses may have disappeared. I don't mean in a bad way, like underground. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> it's not Jimmy Hoffa, but you know, witnesses disappear. Employees go to different companies. Absolutely. So let's go from the interactive process to, to undue hardship. Sounded like an undue hardship to say that. Let's go to undue hardship. Because, as we all know, you don't have to provide an accommodation if the accommodation asked for would cause an undue hardship. Well, let's start with this. Stacy. undue hardship, can you define that for us, please? Sure. So an undue hardship comes into play where due to financial difficulty, um, disruption to the business or fundamentally altering the nature or operation of the business, a, an accommodation requested by employee is, is just too much to undertake. Okay. And so what are some of the factors that the courts are looking at now? I mean, when undue hardship first came out, you know, as a, as a factor or, or, as a, or as a theory um, or an analysis, it, it, you know, companies focused on cost, like the monetary costs. I don't see that as much anymore. What do you all consider to be more effective than cost uh, for establishing undue hardship, John? Yeah, so, so uh, this is something that we talked about a good bit yesterday as well, and I'm glad we did because the real focus here is the impact on operations. And uh, when, you, when you look at the impact on operations, you know, one, uh, I feel like if you're going to be before a jury, they can really understand that. They can understand, let's say, if you're talking about a remote work situation, why it's important to have someone in the office, why it's important the impact on communications with colleagues or on-site meetings or, you know, clients coming on-site for a pitch or what have you. Uh, those things are, are, are very important to, to focus on, and they're very real world. 
The problem with focusing on the financials is that for most employers, you're going to lose that argument right out the gate because the courts are going to say you can afford it, uh, especially the, the, the larger you are. Uh, but the other uh, problem is, and, and a lot of the, the business folks, you're not going to want to open up your finances to the world. And if you're claiming you can't afford to implement that, that accommodation because it costs too much, it's too much of an undue hardship, well, the other side's gonna have an opportunity to say, well, prove it to me, show me your financials. And most people don't wanna do that. So it's another reason why you wanna stay away from it. Stacy, anything you wanna to add to that? So I would second what John has to say. Um, having litigated this issue before, I think when you focus on what is the impact this has on the coworkers? this request? So an example might be if someone asked to be permitted flexibility in their scheduled start time, um, on paper that might seem easy for one person to do, but that might require then the company to have other people work a different time, bring in some additional employees. If it turns into a, an issue in productivity or being able to run that aspect of the business. Other things that I've run into is where someone requests something that, again, maybe it doesn't sound as costly to the person, but would impact the individual employee. So I had a fragrance sensitivity case where an individual asked for no one in the workforce to have um, any sense of any kind. So not to use scented detergent, not to wear perfume, not to wear scented soap. And that wasn't practical to ask a workforce of 200 people to stop buying in their favorite detergent because of the fragrance sensitivity. All right, so Stacy, I'm going to come back to you for this. We're going to address one more topic quickly. Some new information, or rather a new, new legislation, was just passed at the end of 2022, and maybe you could address that. Um, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which is, a, which is national legislation. So if you could maybe explain what that is and how that impacts employers, that would be great. Absolutely. So President Biden passed that in December of 2022, and that is effective June 27th, 2023. And it effectively states that employers who meet the, the coverage requirement, which is employers with 15 or more employees, must provide a reasonable accommodation for the known limitations related to pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions of a qualified employee. Right, but most of many states were, well, the employers that, that in, in our session told us that they were already doing that, uh, which was good, and many states, so for example, California had already had in its Fair Employment and Housing Act that an employer has an affirmative obligation to provide reasonable accommodation um, to, uh, to California employees. All right, John, Stacy, any final words from uh, the session? No, I, I think it, it, we, it was a great session. We had a lot of uh, audience interaction, which I, I think always makes our sessions go well. But, you know, it, it was one of those where at the end of the day, everyone left learning a little bit more and even teaching us a little bit. Yes, yes, Stacy, anything? I second exactly what John says. I think it's a topic that befuddles a lot of clients, and it's a great opportunity to get together, learn from what other clients are doing, and uh, and find new ways to do things. Great. Thank both of you for participating. Stacy, good luck on the next jigsaw puzzle. And um, we hope we hope to see you all next year at uh, Workplace Strategies 2024.
Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.